for today is uh, from Hebrews 13, verses 1 to 8. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. As I was saying, <laughs> um, in this metaphor of the journey, uh, last week what, what Jalen preached um, was this beautiful vision that what we as followers of Jesus approach is not the terror of, um, of what the, the, the Old Testament people of God had to approach when they came to God, unsure of what was out ahead of them, unsure of their worthiness to stand in his presence. And the, the image that the author of Hebrews uses, which is a very real one, it's not a metaphoric one, is the image of Mount Sinai, this very frightening sort of um, uh, full of different natural phenomena, spiritual phenomena that clearly set the people in this place of terror and awe when they went to approach it. He says, that's not what you're approaching. You're approaching something much different. You're actually now welcomed confidently into the throne room. You're welcomed uh, into the presence of God, not because something fundamentally has changed about your worthiness, but you've been made worthy by Jesus who has created a way. And uh, one of my favorite scholars that um, has been really helpful in, in just my studies and all that, a guy named George Guthrie, who's dedicated his life to the letter of Hebrews, is he says that having been swept up by this vision of a pilgrimage on the way to this heavenly gathering that we talked about last week, now what the author does is he plants our feet firmly back in our streets. He gets really practical. And this is, this is a, a constant rhythm of the letter of Hebrews, is this incredibly rich, provocative, theological vision of who Jesus is, what he's doing now, standing at God's right hand, interceding for us and, and our welcome into these heavenly realities where we can boldly approach the throne of grace. And then he, he gets us right back into, okay, but what does this mean for me now? What does this mean about everyday life? Because we're not to be solely people who, um, as followers of Jesus, who meditate on these incredible ideas about God, who, who ruminate on, on different uh, theological realities and doctrines and all of these things and actually do nothing with it, that's to not only, it's not just a, 
half-hearted, halfway understanding of the faith. It's really no understanding at all because unless these things translate into actual action, into changing the way we interact, and I like what Guthrie says there, in our streets, in our homes, in our places of work, then this is really of no use to us at all. And we've seen this in various uh, books, of, particularly of the New Testament that we've worked through. Think of James who says, faith without works is what? It's dead. It's dead. It's useless. It, it's, it's not even half alive. It's utterly dead. We, we see this in the teachings of Jesus, where Jesus himself says, um, to, to come to me is not to merely assent to some truths about who I am. It's to take up a cross daily and to submit yourself to the yoke of my teaching, of my training, of my development of you. And the biblical word for that is discipleship. And that's really the, the concept that Hebrews now turns to in chapter 13 in what Rachel just read for us. And really what you hear here is nothing, nothing brand new if you have any familiarity with, with Christian faith, with the scriptures, is really what he's bringing us back to is the basics. And yet here's what I think is going on, and here's what I think is going on even for a community like ours, or maybe especially for a community like ours, is in seasons that are especially difficult and complex, and can I get an amen that this has been a especially difficult and complex season, that so often what we need is not something new, is we need to be reminded of the basics. We need to be reminded of the ABCs of faith. We need to be reminded, at times even, of what faithfulness has looked like in the past and to return again to those things. And that's what he's doing here. Listen to the language of these opening verses. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Now, he has just spent all of this time and energy and space in this letter articulating how it is that we went from spiritual death to spiritual life, what we will celebrate today in, in praises baptism. He has spent all of this time talking about how going from spiritual death to spiritual life, one of the foundational blessings of it is that we are now adopted into the family of God, that we can call God Father with confidence. We can have the audacity to approach this utterly holy and other one and call him dad because we've been brought into this family by a great and better older brother who has done what is necessary, who has paid the price, not just for himself, but so that, to use Hebrew's language, so that many sons and daughters might come with him into the family of God. And notice what he's doing here is he's saying, okay, all of that is beautiful. All of that should get an amen. All of that is stunning that we are children of God by the grace of Jesus. The implication in our streets, the implication in our homes, the implication here at Jacob's Well is that means the follower of Jesus to your right and to your left is nothing less than a sibling in light of these realities and therefore is worthy of brotherly, sisterly affection from you. Do you see how that takes some very, some very heady theology and lands it in our laps, especially in a season like this? He says, you got to love each other like your, like your siblings. 
Now, a lot of us might associate that with negative things, sibling rivalries and tough things. And I have two boys, and we were talking about this this week, is the uniqueness of that relationship. I grew up with a sister. My wife uh, grew up with a brother, and so we didn't have the same sibling thing going on. And right there is this sense in which uh, you can be worst enemies, but more often than not, best friends, and those can kind of jump back and forth. Here, obviously, we're emphasizing those moments where you look over it and you say, man, is, is there a deeper friendship than what these two boys share? That's the brotherly affection. The word here is one that you're probably familiar with. Anybody have a guess of what the, the Greek word is? You can flex on us a little bit. Brotherly love. Not agape. Good guess. Yeah, Philadelphia, very good. Yeah, the city of brotherly love. That comes from the Greek word. He's saying, let Philadelphia continue. Now, as a New York sports fan, I have issues with that in a certain way. But right, what he's talking about here is that affection. And what I love is notice what it says. It says, let it continue. This is something that, that he sees demonstrated in the community currently. He's not saying let it start up. He's not saying hey, you've never done this before, and so this is something that you need to deeply consider. He's calling on past faithfulness that they've had. Say, this is something that, that you need to keep working at. And I think that this is meant in two ways. It's meant as an encouragement to them to say, you've done this before. You know what this looks like. Maybe not in a season this hard and complex, but you know what it's like to care well for one another. I've seen this in your midst. You are a church that loves each other well. You are a community that has figured out how to care for one another's needs in other times. Let that continue. Keep working on that. So there's encouragement in that, but there's also challenge in that because he's saying it takes work to keep doing this. And this feels really in season for us as a community. I have simply never in all of my years, and I was here the second Sunday we met on our founding pastor's couch, I have never ever seen our community go through more difficulty, more complexity. And therefore, I have never, um, and we're just going to go ahead and name this over the next month, because we feel like if we don't, um, then, then we can't actually experience healing and move forward, is I have never experienced a, a season that's done more damage to our church that has separated us, that has isolated us, that has created suspicion of one another, that has taken um, good friendships and made them distant and then created this sense of, well, well who, who goes first now, right? Like, like who actually takes the first step? Oh, it's so awkward because we haven't spoken in so long. And so much of that is deeply understandable. It really is. I don't know that we had another choice than to experience this the way that we have, which is as profoundly damaging to many of the relationships in our lives. And so it's going to take work, hard work, to move increasingly back toward one another, back toward brotherly and sisterly affection toward one another. But we want to say that we as your leaders are committed to that work. We're committed to that work among ourselves, and we want to see that work among the wider community? Because these, these, these are the, we, we got to get back to being a family. We got to get back to looking across, right? And some of this, honestly, some of this is because some of you are new to the community. And you're like, how do I feel like a brother or sister, people I've never even been around, right? We're aware of that barrier, right? Like we, we just need to kind of be together a lot 
You probably look around the room and you say, I don't know that I know many people here. That goes for those of you who have been around a long time. That goes for those of you who are new. And so we've got to work at this. We're going to have to make commitments to each other to actually show up um, when we can, even if that's a, oh, God bless us, Zoom call, right? To begin to move back toward being able to look around this room and say, this is, this is not just the family of God. This is my family. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Um, there you go. <laughs> it's like a very hot take verse, like out of nowhere. It's like, what was that last part? Uh, let's talk about the first part. Um, do not neglect... And this word neglect, right, it's the right word. Again, we're talking about things that tend to go to the sides in seasons of exhaustion and difficulty and get neglected, right? He's not saying you hate this. He's not saying you unhospitable, horrible people. He's saying, no, th this tends toward neglect, right? It tends to be like that house plant that never gets watered. And then you look over and you go, I'm so bad at this, right? Like, I'm so bad at the houseplant thing. Oh, so many laughs on that. Clearly, we have horrible, horrible gardeners uh, in here, right? Like, we've all seen this. That's how hospitality can be. Now, here's the interesting thing, right? Like, we can't be in each other's homes by and large. So how do you practice hospitality? Again, what he's saying here is you've done this before. And yes, you're in a new and complex and exhausting season. So you've got to figure out what hospitality means. The word hospitality there is an interesting word. It, it's actually um, just like Philadelphia. Um, Adelphia is, is the word for, for brothers, brothers and sisters. Um, and then the philos is, is the love of. Um, the, the word here that, that we translate hospitality is actually the word for the love of, of a stranger, the love for a foreigner. That's why it says practice hospitality with strangers. But the Christian community largely took this up and, and really did, um, did use this term to talk about pretty good overlap with what we think of as hospitality. Opening your home, making it available to others, providing for the needs of others. This was especially important in the early Christian community. You had a lot of itinerant people um, going from church to church and without someone opening their home, right? No holiday inns, no travelocity in that time. Um, how would you possibly be able to maintain a ministry? Think of Paul himself who has to write ahead to make sure that there's a place for him to stay one of the itinerant missionaries in the early church. And so this was, again, just a, a basic. And he's saying, don't neglect this because you're leaving a lot on the table without it. And so, yeah, we've got to get a little creative to figure out what does hospitality mean. And honestly, hospitality might just mean you, you send that first awkward text and say, hey, it's been a really long time and we haven't spoken and we used to be really close. And I'm going to assume the best in you. Can you assume the best in me? That it wasn't because I think you're a bad person or I don't care about you or all of those things, right? Like that's, that's going to take some guts to do. This is where we have to be distinctly Christian in how we move forward in this, to offer forgiveness, to seek forgiveness from those that we've neglected. That's pro probably what hospitality looks like in this season. And if we do go into Delta variant lockdown or whatever, right, we're going we're gonna to need to, right? And, and this is where we, um, I, you owe, uh, you're owed some coaching in all this, right? Because what I'm not saying is you should be just as hospitable now as you were two years ago, or you should have just as wide a circle socially and relationally. No, like we're all, I know that we're all depleted. I get it. <laughs> I get it. 
right? Like we are a depleted people. And so there needs to be, but what I would say is that what, what grace always does is it pushes a little past our comfort. What grace does is it pushes a little past what we think we deserve to do or not do. And so whatever that nudge outward is, that's probably what hospitality, it's maybe that next, right? Like there's been a lot of talks of concentric circles of friends in this, right? Like we had our pod and then we had our next, right? Like it's probably pushing maybe one band out on that and saying, hey, how are you? Hey, it's been a long time. Hey, how's, how's COVID been for you? How's your job doing? You okay health-wise, financially? And I also think that this is where, and I think that we, um, this is something, honestly, that, that I've always been aware that I struggle with, that, that I think our community struggles with, that's a uniquely Central Jersey kind of struggle, is being actual neighbors to, like, real neighbors. Because most of you have neighbors. Do you know that? Like, people who live there and there, right? Like, they're, they're actually neighbors. Um, and we do all kinds of things. We're like, yeah, but what does the Greek mean, right, like, of neighbor? It's like, oh, someone who lives, like, close to you, like, there and there, right? And so, yeah, maybe it's not having people over. Who knows what, what the implications of that are? But it might be, hey, hey, neighbor, um, I don't know that I've introduced myself. And you can stand across your yard and say, how's COVID been for you? Anything you guys need, anything we can help with, we're here. We're neighbors. That's, like, radical. <laughs> you might get some, like, oh, no, some psychopaths, you, you know, like, moved in next door from, from that response. But doesn't that feel distinct? Doesn't that feel other than? Doesn't that feel like taking our highfalutin theology that we have been welcomed into the family of God, given a new name, rescued by the one who, while we were yet sinners, died for us? Can we say hello and actually know the names of our neighbors? Doesn't that feel like a push, right? We're not asking for fireworks here. We're not asking to, you know, open a hostel in your home or something. Like, let's start as best we can with whatever depleted energy we have. What is this? Uh, Thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Um, This is fascinating. I think one way to see it, uh, I read one scholar who was like, you kind of see it as like a Willy Wonka, like golden ticket. Um, Like there's a bunch of strangers throughout the New Brunswick area and maybe the one that you choose to like help out is an angel and they like reveal themselves and they're like, oh, you got it, right? probably not what's going on here is what that scholar was saying, by the way. Um, I don't think that this is like, you never know, you know, like, um, I remember I grew up in a, in a Christian household, and I remember my mom kind of using this to be like, go give that person, you know, go help that person out. They could be an angel. And I remember being like, that terrifies me, which I think is actually biblically correct, because most people when they encounter angels are utterly terrified. What's going on here? Why mention this? Well, first of all, there's biblical precedent for this. Almost certainly what he has in mind, keep in mind, the reason why this letter is called Hebrews is why. It is, it is written to a bunch of Hebrew people, a bunch of Jewish, very familiar with, his audience is very familiar with the Old Testament. And so when they think of, wait, who, who has entertained angels unaware? We go like, whoa, is that some just like dropped from heaven insight that he gets? No, 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 this has biblical precedent. This is what happens um, Particularly uh, in stories in Genesis, Abraham and Sarah have angels show up to them. Lot has an angel. Gideon in Judges five or Judges six has an angel show up. Manoah and they all show up as kind of strangers, as, as kind of wandering people. So that's almost certainly what he's getting at here. But why mention it? Why mention it? I thought a lot about this this week. Is I think it's easy to say, 
that, well, what he's saying is you, you never know. It could be an angel. And so, like, if it is an angel, they're, they're extra worthy of you, like, treating them kindly because you don't want to mess with an angel. But actually, the more I thought about it, angels have already been mentioned in this letter. And this, you, you have to have been with us for a little while and, and have some retention of what we've talked through. Um, all the way back in chapter 2, we get a lot of language about angels. And do you remember what the, what the whole point of talking about angels was? It was that someone is superior to angels. Who? Christ. Good. But who else is superior to angels? Does anybody know this? This would just be extra bonus. Who? We are. We are. In, in, in chapter 2, the whole argument that he makes about angels is he, says, is he says, as stunning as angels are, as amazing as angels are, it is actually not to angels that God has given the responsibility to bear his image in the world. Now, that has gone very wrong, but this is why when Jesus comes, he doesn't come as an angel, he comes as a human being, because it was always meant to be a human being who would perfectly embody what it meant to be an image bearer of God. To, to, to be who God would be and to do what God would do if he were physically present here. That was the dignity, the unique dignity given to humanity. And therefore, humanity is actually, in that way of looking at it, of superior glory even to the angels themselves. This is why when Jesus comes, he comes to restore our glory. So why mention hey, practice hospitality towards strangers because some, in doing so, have entertained angels unawares. It's saying, it, he knows that our first response is like, oh, angels? That's amazing. Imagine having an angel in your house. Like, for real. Imagine having a cup of coffee with an angel. And he's saying, you think that's cool? What you pass every day are image bearers of the creator himself. What you pass every day are the ones whose redemption the angels are looking in on. Say, did it happen yet? Has humanity been rescued yet? Because we know that, that they're the ones favored of God who bear his image uniquely. C.S. Lewis, sweetie, is my phone over there? Sorry. Um, I just got to send a text. No, I'm kidding. There's a quote on here that I want to read for you. C.S. Lewis once put it this way. He said, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, by the way, those are lowercase g, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of those destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection, the carefulness proper to them, that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. That's stunning. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Here he's talking about um, proximity to suffering, as we've said many times over these last couple years, and deep empathy with suffering. He's saying, remember those who are in chains. What it literally says here is, remember those who are in prison as though in chains with them. 
It's a, it's a very specific word that he uses here to talk about being, uh, it's a word that's used in Acts when Paul is, is chained with someone, like Silas, or, or he's chained with someone on, on a ship being, being taken um, by guards. And so that's the level of withness we should have with those. And, and in this setting, speaking specifically of those in prison, because many most likely from their community were currently in prison because of their faith. Most scholars agree that that's certainly the background, at least part of the background to this entire letter, is when you have watched your friends and family members get carried off to prison for their faith. I mean, imagine the level of exhaustion, the level of suffering. And could this feel more timely given what's going on in the world right now, what's going on in Afghanistan? Um, the unbelievable amount of suffering that Christians are going through currently and are anticipating as time goes by. He's saying we, we've, we've got to put our, we've got to do the hard work again of saying, man, what does it mean to really, to really even for a moment imagine ourselves in that position? Again, this is a distinctly Christian approach to that. It's not just say, wow, that's terrible. God bless the USA. I'm glad I'm here. Right? These are brothers and sisters. Again, this is family of God that we're talking about. And even if they're not Christians, these are, as we just talked about, image bearers of God, worthy of dignity, worthy of protection, worthy of the preservation of life, whether they're believers or not, going through these things. And so do we pray? Do we actually do what we can do to figure out if there's some way to help when these kinds of things occur, and then closer to home, right? Those who are suffering in our midst, listen, listen to, to what he says. He says, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Again, a very interesting little addition to this command, since you also are in the body. What's he getting at there? It seems like he, he's probably toying with, probably if you're familiar with the scriptures and kind of tracking along and, and haven't zoned out, you, you probably went one of two ways. Since you also are in the body, um, one way to see that is uh, you've got a body. And mistreatment here is almost certainly a euphemism for torture and imprisonment and, and the things that he's just named. He's saying if you have a body, you know what it's like for that body to suffer somehow, some way. And so it shouldn't be that hard for any of us to put ourselves in a place to say, I know what pain is like. And when you're going through pain, I choose that even for a moment to say, yeah, I know what it's like to have a body that can be in horrible pain and suffering. The other thing that you might have thought of in saying, because you also are in the body, is what? What body are you in? Yeah, the body of Christ, right? This, this New, Testament metaphor, New Testament metaphor for the people of God. To say, you're talking about someone who is also part of the body. And this is something that the Apostle Paul says more explicitly elsewhere where he says, if one part of the body suffers, what? All suffer, exactly. And you know what this is like. We all know what this is like. Ever had a toothache? Right? Did your toes hurt? Kind of, right? You're kind of like, everything hurts. Ever had an earache? Right? There's certain kinds of pain that the body goes through that you just forget everything else. And no one could tell you, let me name the things that don't hurt right now. You're fine. Like, I know you have a right earache, but like your left ear is fine, so come on. Yet this is what we so often do to each other. I know you're hurting, but I'm okay, and it'd be a little bit, 
taxing on me to really enter into that, to really ask you how's it going, to ask the deeper question of what's, what's it like to be going through that. This is, this is empathy being called, again, a distinctly Christian way of moving towards suffering and pain instead of ignoring it. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. What he does here is now he transitions um, in, in this one verse. He's talked about the kinds of loves that we need to give ourselves to, and then what he's going to start talking about are the kinds of loves we need to avoid. It was the, the great North African theologian, Augustine, who said there may be no better way to think about what God does in the life of the believer, what discipleship is, than, than rightly ordering our loves. That the fundamental problem with the human condition is we love the wrong things, or we love the right things wrongly. We love them too much. We are to love God first and foremost. We are to love others in deep connection with that. And yet so often self-love is the thing. Self-fulfillment, the gratification of our desires are the things that we pursue first, foremost, with the greatest focus. And the work of Jesus is to rightly order that because actually, though we learn this from the beginning of Scripture, all the way up until the, the mess of modern celebrity culture, the pursuit of self-gratification is actually the road, given the way the human machine is built, toward destruction, toward self-destruction, and that actually true freedom, and we know this from the opening pages of the scriptures, all the way up until now and the kinds of people that we actually admire and revere. We know that true human freedom is found in the giving away of ourselves and the sacrificing toward others. And yet, within our own wrestling selves, we find it really hard, human after human after human, with one exception, we'll get to him in a moment, to actually choose life rather than self-destruction. And so he says, hold marriage in honor. What is marriage other than the intentional giving away of oneself? Right? The biblical view of marriage not the rom-com view of marriage. The biblical view of marriage is that marriage exists to give you an opportunity to live out the gospel in close quarters with another person who is utterly unlike you. That's really hard. <laughs> like, really hard. And really sobering. Because so often we think marriage is the end of the movie where we walk away, skipping, having gone through the hard part of our relationship, which was dating and engagement. And now we get to do the fun stuff and be together every day. And nobody says amen, right? Like nobody says like, yeah, that measures up, right? Like marriage is actually the intentional choice to put someone else's needs first to enter a dance in which you are always choosing to lead out in pursuing reconciliation with the other, in pursuing the flourishing of the other. That's why it's to be held in honor at all times, because it's a high calling. It's not the only calling. I think we talked about this in our physical discipleship class. There, there's a calling to singleness that is equally beautiful, has equal dignity, by the way, y'all, Jesus was single like 
There's, there's an equal, but what he's doing here is he's talking about the love that is necessary there should be protected because it's precious, because it's doing something in the lives of those spouses that is sacred. It is sanctifying them, to use the biblical language of it. It is making them more like Jesus if they're choosing to themselves hold it in honor. You see, you're not just supposed to hold other people's marriages in honor. You're not just supposed to hold up policy that holds marriage in honor. You're to first and foremost hold your marriage in honor and to see it as the most precious thing in your life, to be guarded at all costs from all enemies against it, including your own heart. Hold it in honor at all times. This is why the marriage bed, I love the euphemism there for the kids in the room, the marriage bed is to be undefiled. You don't mess with that. You don't go outside of those bounds. Because do you know what that is? It's the same thing as the next thing that's condemned, which is the the love of money, which is both of these things are essentially self-gratification outside the bounds of God's provision. Anytime we self-gratify outside of where God says joy exists, We are almost inevitably destroying ourselves and we're destroying those around us. I have now had a front row seat to several marriages dissolving, particularly through unfaithfulness. It is a brutal thing. It is a gut-wrenching thing. Oh, that we would be a church that held in honor marriage, that took it with grave seriousness for ourselves and for one another. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Keep your life free from the love of money. Hear, hear another love? We really love money. Like I'm watching this in, in, my, uh, in, in my little ones. They don't even know what to do with it. They have no clear sight. But man, they find a quarter and it's like, literally the word here, the love of money, is the love of silver, which is like very interesting for some reason. That's, That's the Greek term. Why do we love money? Why do we see, here's here's the message translation, which every now and then the message, Eugene Peterson just crushes. He just puts it really simply. He says, don't be obsessed with getting more material things. (laughs) I love that. Love of money sounds like kind of, King Jamesy. It's like, don't be obsessed with getting more stuff. Why do we want more stuff? One, because we love dopamine hit, right? Like, we love that sense of, like, joy. And then it's like, um, okay, what's next, right? Like, this is my, how I think of this is this is my eternal Amazon wish list, right? Where I'm like, oh my goodness, if I get these 17 items. And then, like, six years later, I look back, I'm like, I got all 17 items. And yet, I'm still not fully satisfied in my soul, right? One, we think that joy exists in the accumulation in the accumulation of more stuff. We really believe that. Like, I believe that. I believe, like, if I got, like, four or five more things, I'd probably, like, I'd probably, like, jump. I'd, like, jump another level of happiness. The other thing we believe is that in money and in stuff is security, is I'm going to be okay. I know I'm going to be okay if I have this amount, if I could pay off that bill, if I could pay off this debt. And look, there is a place for financial stewardship. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We'll disciple you through that. We've done that for many people. But there's also this, this idolatrous thing, this, this worship thing that says, if I had those, right? If you, really, if you really dug down deep, 
It would sound, it would honestly sound like this, though very few of us, myself included, would want to admit. If I have that and that and that, and that amount and that in savings and that paid off, I wouldn't need anything. I wouldn't need anything. I'd be good. You know what else you wouldn't need? You wouldn't need God. You wouldn't need him. That's why he quotes here. He says, don't, don't love money. Keep it free and be content with what you have because I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know who said this? Who said I will never leave you nor forsake you? That's what I thought. It's not Jesus. He actually never says this. Um, that's what I thought. I was like, oh, it'd be great if Jesus said it. Jesus didn't say it. You know who said it first in the Bible? Moses says it to Joshua. Does anybody know anything about Moses and Joshua? Moses, leader of God's people, all the way up until they're about to go into the promised land. Then Joshua is actually the one who's going to go into the promised land. And Moses said, be of good courage, don't fear, for God has told me that has told me, this is Moses speaking, that he will never leave me nor forsake you, and he's not going to leave you nor forsake you. And then God says it himself directly to Joshua right at the beginning of Joshua. Now, why is that relevant? Maybe this is just the Bible nerd in me. What I love about that is it's once again the writer of Hebrews going back to the image of pilgrimage, going back to the image of journey. We're a people right on the brink of promised land. All we got to do is persevere. All we've got to do is be faithful, and it's ours. It's there for the taking. And the most essential provision that we need in it is not physical food, not even metaphorical bread, as the kids say, right? Not money. It's nothing financial. It's nothing external. It's to know that God is with us. And if God is with us, then no matter what we have or do not have, we have sufficiency in our life. In studying the Lord's Prayer, we're going to be working through the Lord's Prayer in the fall in, in the teaching series. One of my favorite things that I read was, what does the petition, give us this day our daily bread, mean to a bunch of people? I can almost guarantee in this room, maybe with a couple of exceptions that I just don't know about, that most of us are not nervous about whether we will eat tomorrow. Like, give us this day our daily bread. What am I actually asking for? And one of my favorite insights on that was to a people who knows exactly where their bread is coming from tomorrow. That means teach me when enough is enough. Teach me to believe that I have enough, to have a settled heart that says enough, enough of not having enough already. And this exists at extreme levels of poverty where you do need a little bit more to have enough, but it also exists at extreme levels of wealth. Some of the richest people in this nation's history, Andrew Carnegie was asked, how much is enough? And you know what his answer was? A little bit more. That's crazy. And yet that sounds a lot like me. It's just easier to judge him because by my standards, he's got enough. But inevitably, right, especially as those living in this nation at this time, there is someone who looks at my life and says, are you kidding me? You don't have enough, bro? Probably says it nicer than that. They're probably nicer than me. Right? But this is what wealth does. This is why Pastor in New York City, Tim Keller, said, I've never, come, never had someone come to me confessing the sin of greed. Never. Because it's always so easy, especially in a place like New York City, especially in a state like New Jersey, to always look around and say, yeah, but they got more. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. I love this, by the way. Is he says, so that we can say, he says, keep your, yourself, your life free from the love of money so that you can say, there are certain truths about God that you can only say on the other side of having experienced it. 
You can't say the Lord is my helper if you've never cried out for him and said, Lord, you're all that I've got and actually found that he provides. On the other side of that, you can say, the Lord is my provider. And he's saying, so keep yourself free from the love of money. Say enough is enough. And then on the other side of it, you will be able to actually proclaim from experiential deep knowledge, the Lord is my helper. And guess what else? The I will not fear there is actually, if you know grammar, a passive thing. It's I will not be caused to be afraid. Nothing can make me afraid. He's saying this is the gift of godly contentment is you say, what can human being do to me? My sufficiency is in God. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. What he's saying here is he's almost certainly referring to the people um, likely who have died at this point, who founded this church. And he's saying, consider, consider how their lives went. Consider the outcome of their lives. And we just read in Hebrews 11, the outcome of some saints' lives is not pretty. And yet he's saying, but look deeper. Because so often... In a culture like ours, what we see on the surface, what the image is, there is so often deep corruption behind that. This is why I'm obsessed to this day with celebrity, uh, uh, what do they call them? Like documentaries, right? Like, like especially like when people get way too famous, way too young, everything looks amazing. Everyone follows them on Instagram. And then you look a little bit deeper in their lives and there's profound troubledness of various kinds. I think what the author of Hebrews is saying here is the opposite is also true. So often the people that we think, oh, that must be a miserable way to live. Ooh, they're, they're, sort of, uh, they're sort of outside of what culture says the good life is. He says, oh, look deeper. Those documentaries don't get made because we don't want to know what's going on with them. And he says, but be distinctly Christian. Say, yeah, but those are some of the most contented, some of the kindest, some of the most genuinely, right, like one of the most beautiful things is to be invited into the home of one of these saints and to find like, whoa, things are different here. There's a peace here. There's a calm here. There's a kindness. There's a gentleness beneath the surface of maybe what I originally judged and said, that doesn't look very attractive. He says, remember it, examine it, imitate it. Then he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Um, which again is just this very interesting sort of tag on. Uh, What seems to be going on here, I mean, think think of when this is written, is it's written not that long, you know, just, just a few decades, not centuries, right? Like we're millennia after the events of Jesus' life. This is decades after the events of Jesus' life. What he's saying here is Jesus is the same yesterday, and there he's probably referring to Jesus, how Jesus dealt with those people, the people whose faith I'm asking you to imitate, the people who started this church, the people who maybe died for their faith. That same Jesus walks with you. He's the same. He doesn't change. Here's here's, uh, one thing in in recording the intellectual discipleship uh, content this summer with Rachel. One thing that we were reminded of that I remember was really compelling to us is the idea 
that Jesus' consistency of character means that he responds differently in different circumstances. And that actually speaks to the uniqueness, the greatness of who he was. Because someone who responds who's a one-note person, always a yeller, always angry all the time, you get the sense like that person's probably got a lot going on, right? Like probably not great things going on inside of it. Also though, the person who's always passive, always just like everything's fine, everything's fine, everything. You're probably like, okay, that, that person probably also has some broken stuff going on there. It's the person who is able to somehow have a consistent posture in all of those, but difference of response that's truly compelling to us. I don't know if you've ever had a coach like this. I'm an Alabama football fan, which couldn't be weirder for a person born on Long Island. But I'm an Alabama football fan, and I love Nick Saban, who's the coach of Alabama. One of the things that Nick Saban is most famous for is he treats every player very differently. Has a very consistent posture, very consistent thing he's trying to move them toward, but he's totally different in, in how he approaches. Some guys, he's all over them. He's screaming and yelling. Very famous story about a linebacker, those of you who are into football, uh, all seven of you, you'll love this. Dante Hightower, I think he plays for the Patriots, or he did play for the Anyway, Dante Hightower, great linebacker. First day of practice ever that, that he's in Nick Saban's program, he does something wrong. Nick Saban absolutely blows him up, just blows him up, as, as he tends to do with new players. It completely shuts Dante Hightower down. Saban immediately realizes, I can't be that way with that kid for whatever reason. And so instead, he takes a totally dif different approach with this guy. And all he does is he speaks over him, encouragement. He speaks over him. He's the best linebacker in the country. They, they're not going to know what to do with you on side. And this guy becomes an All-American, gets drafted really high in the draft. And he's one of the only guys who would say, like, yeah, Saban, oh, super encouraging. Other guys are like, super encouraging. And yet, almost all these guys end up in the NFL. Because there's a consistency of what his intentions are, but there's a difference in his response. That's what's being gotten at here. You have a Jesus who is utterly and totally consistent in his character. His intentions are always good. What he asks of you, he never backs out on. The things that he blesses, the places where he shows up in our stories, the kinds of things that he loves to see his people doing, always the same, always the same, always consistent. But I think hearing Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, we can think that he's just kind of this robe He's just kind of this like, I am the same, you are different. No, no, no. He's this, is, this is where the beauty of his personality comes in. Is He knows and understands the unique challenges of 2021. But he's calling out the same things from us. And he might do it differently. But he's saying it's the same Jesus. It's the same one who was faithful all the way back then. And I love that he says, yesterday, today, and forever. Here's the reality. None of what I've just said is possible without Jesus going first in all of this. Because who is Jesus other than the one who chose to treat us against all evidence as brothers and sisters and to bring us home to the Father? Who is Jesus other than the Philadelphia par excellence? Who is Jesus other than the one who made space for us, who at great expense to himself, opened himself, his very being to us so that we could finally know home at last. Who is Jesus other than the one who is put in literal chains so that we might go free? Who is Jesus other than the one mistreated so that a body could be constituted with him as its head? Who is Jesus other than the one who in the unbelievable, tumultuous marriage between humanity and God himself 
at infinite cost to himself, was the one who actually pursued reconciliation with us. Who is Jesus other than the one who laid all riches aside, all heavenly riches aside, such that we might go from utter spiritual poverty to overwhelming spiritual sufficiency and, yes, even spiritual wealth? 